This is a special COVID-19 episode. Recorded over Zoom, I interview Naz Jaber, the co-founder of The Migrant Kitchen, whose team is currently delivering over 50,000 free meals a day in New York and New Jersey to feed the food insecure families of those impacted by the COVID-19 crisis, including local healthcare workers on the front line in and around the city. Joining us is Isra Nazir, a clinically trained psychotherapist with experience of working with minority communities in New York City and treating their cultural and immigration-based challenges, anxiety issues, traumas, and the stresses people are suffering as this crisis unfolds. We cover the amazing work Naz is doing, the logistical challenges they face daily in this disaster relief program, the complexity of sourcing and preparing, cooking and delivering under CDC guidance and social distancing standards, and his GoFundMe campaign. We also cover the issues facing the food insecure communities and the social injustice of the current food supply chain and the broader social issues this virus has exposed and his personal experience of dealing with and overcoming his own mental health challenges that started growing up in occupied Palestine. Isra discusses the work she is doing to confront the stigma in Asian communities and some of the mental health challenges they face and how the virus has equalised the calls for help and the impact on frontline workers. She also expands upon the cultural and generational taboos around mental health and anxiety and the changes underway. We also discuss the mental health issues facing people working in restaurants and kitchens and the exploitation of people of colour, undocumented workers and gender-based bias. Due to some connection issues around the halfway part, there are some glitches when Naz is speaking for a couple of minutes, but we've left them in as the sound returns to normal just after that. I hope you're inspired and moved to support the great work of Naz Jaber and Isra Nazir. Isra, Naz, welcome. <laughs> My full name is Isra Nasser. Isra Nasser, Isra Nasser or Naz? Welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so um, great to have you here on Zoom. Uh, really good to speak to you. And thanks so much for making the time because I know you're both busy and in particular, uh, you, Naz, are exceptionally busy feeding people around the city. So thank you. I really appreciate the time. Just to introduce you to the audience, uh, Naz, you uh, formed The Migrant Kitchen and you and The Migrant Kitchen team are providing meals to feed families and healthcare workers working on the front line of this crisis around New York City uh, with meals. And we can come and talk about the the work you've been doing and all the broader work as part of the the Chef Jose Andres uh, World Kitchen initiative as well. It's very, you're, as I understand it, a clinically trained psychotherapist. And you do a lot of work with Asian communities in your sort of private practice and also have a perspective I think you could be able to share with us in terms of how people are dealing with the mental health impact of this crisis at the moment. But also you work for a healthcare company, a healthcare tech, um, that gives you an interesting perspective on probably what's happening in the background as we're trying to find vaccines and a cure for this. So perhaps we could both just, you could both just start by giving a little bit of background beyond what I've said in terms of how you've arrived at where you are working, living in New York City and your specific areas of work and interest. Sure. So I can begin. Thanks for that lovely intro. And I'm very happy to be here. So I will start by saying my day job, I work in mental health tech and we are focused on bridging the gap in services using technology for mental health services specifically. And, you know, this move to remote services right now because of Corona has, it's difficult to say, but it has been like a 
a good thing for mental health technology because now you've suddenly seen an increase in services remotely and more and more people are able to access therapeutic services for lowered prices. And on the back end, you can kind of see government regulations scrambling to meet that demand. So that's that's actually a really good thing that's come out yeah. of it. My passion project is more around increasing mental health awareness and literacy and working to reduce stigma around mental health, specifically in Asian communities. So I'm a South Asian woman and I try to create spaces and generate conversations around mental health, mental wellness, you know, and emotional well-being in in as many ways that I can through workshops, through my writings, and just in my regular life with people around me, just kind of bringing them into conversations. Brilliant. Okay, well, we'll jump into that in a bit more detail. Naz, let's talk about what you've been up to and the great work you're doing. The great work I think this entire city is doing, trying to get forward. And of course, you know, like thanks to you guys, uh, Spirit Mark and Israel, for bringing out the concept of mental health because I personally heavily struggle with mental health issues. And if it hasn't for, you know, people like you and my therapist in particular who helped me, you know, come from a very dark place, uh, I wouldn't be here doing the best I can to pay it forward. Essentially, I am one of the 12 chefs in the country that is doing emergency feeding for the United States. I am in taking over New York City. Uh, in New Jersey. We're at 50,000 plates a day. Wow. We didn't start at 50,000 plates, but this is the current output now. We also have pledged with the mayor's office for an additional 200,000 meals for the month of Ramadan, which will bring our daily output from our kitchens of to 12,000 meals. These entire kitchens are run by some of the best chefs in the country. My mentor, Dan Dorado, and Chef Ryan Graham, the former executive chef of John George and a team of six or seven undocumented workers because we're very much open and forward about the fact that we are hiring workers who don't get the benefit of unemployment insurance. And uh, we teamed up with DoorDash, which waived, waived all their fees. So we paid the drivers directly. So we have a fleet of 100 cars. And we now Whoa, teamed up amazing. with Chelsea Rentals. Yeah. And we teamed up with Chelsea Rentals to provide trucks and refrigeration trucks as we now go forward. So... This is a people-to-people, immigrant-to-immigrant disaster relief mission. And it's giving us a lot of training on what to do when other... I mean, unfortunately, I hope we never have to do it again. But, you know, if things happen, hurricanes, disasters, wars, uh, we have now heavily been trained in logistical operations when it comes to providing food. It sounds like a a military standard, a military-grade logistics program. Absolutely. Actually, in the beginning, our lead dispatch, Kelly, had a conversation with uh, a a person who I can't name, but he's uh, led the food logistics during the war in Iraq. And we had to basically figure out how to mobilize civilian cars and civilian trucks to deliver food on time, bring it out on time, because it's the same thing as in a war zone. I mean, Mm. I'm sure they have much more challenges, but like nonetheless, the principles or the basics remain the same. So can you just break down the a little bit more into logistics? Because when people hear about this, they go, wow, that's incredible. How do you identify the chefs, uh, source the food in the sufficient uh, amounts, keep it fresh, deliver it on time to people who need it? How do you identify the people most in need? And how do you allocate it between healthcare workers and underserved families? There's a lot in there, I know. Sorry. Um, no, 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 no. I mean, I'm glad you asked that question um, because I've been talking about it all day. <laughs> so, uh, okay, to begin, 
every kitchen that we take must be under like above 2,000 square feet because you can't have more than 10 people in a room, which means the kitchen has to be allocated with social distance. Allocation of the chefs, I mean, we've been in the business for 20 years. We know some of the best chefs in the world. The question is who is going to donate their time. But for us, it was important not just to cook food. It was important that we talk to our migrant workers, whether they're Pakistani or Palestinian or Latino or whatever, and have deep discussions about food. And then come up with some sort of innovative dish that's very simple and easy to cook that includes like a rice, a bean, and a protein that mm-hmm. can be sent out and done in bulk. We already had experience because outside of all of this, I have a restaurant, a Palestinian restaurant on the west side of Manhattan. But better, more than that, I have a catering company that services all of WeWork locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we already were like able to scale up and do these kind of recipes in our kitchens. When the shutdown happened, I had a thousand meals in my fridge. And of course, these things were going to go bad. Now, growing up in Palestine, I already knew that there's going to be food insecurity happening, also going through the 2008 financial crisis. You all know that everybody's going to be food insecurity. But on a personal level, I was homeless for six months last year after a failed business and a failed relationship. And uh, basically, I lost everything. And that's before even the restaurant took, you know, took off. So I, like, I was going from shelter to shelter. I was staying on people's couches. So the shelters that I fed first uh, were the shelters that I stayed in. And that was like the, really the most important thing. But of course, as the restaurants shut down on Monday, you know, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you're a failure to the family. So in this conversation, Israel is a success, not mm-hmm. the failure uh, in the eyes of our society, which I'm very proud of her. She's an amazing doctor. So they reached out asking for food. And one person will tell the other, one person will not tell the other. And all of a sudden, we're feeding entire ER units. I remember the head of the ER unit at Mount Sinai called me and said, I have 300 nurses and doctors that are hungry at the COVID unit. Can you send? And then that number increased within two days to 450. We didn't have the money for it. So we launched a GoFundMe that started with $18. If you look at the GoFundMe link, literally on the day it launched, it was $18. And then MSNBC picked up the story and it took off. And that became a national trend. Everybody and their mother jumped on feeding the healthcare workers. Now you can't, you don't hear everybody, Jehovah Andreas, because nobody focused on the healthcare workers up until that trend became a thing when we started it, which is fine because now everybody jumped to feed the healthcare workers, which allowed us to easy up on the hospitals because doing logistics within hospitals is a nightmare itself. So a lot of the doctors who are getting food, even from World Center Kitchen, they're getting trucks outside the hospital, but they can't just leave the COVID and mm. grab lunch like from nine to five. We had to figure out internally access within the hospital that does delivery logistics to each unit after we drop off the food in front of the hospital. It's almost like a, like a mapped up food runner inside the hospital. So the way that we did it is that we got some of the best food runners that we worked with over the years and asked them to look at the, the blueprints of the hospitals and be like, okay, how can they go from here to here to here to here with the jump? And it was just a bunch of Mexican guys are like, okay, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. Incredible. Yeah. So that's how we were able to get everything out. Now, of course, in terms of getting all the food out in time, we have, like I mentioned, five kitchens and one sixth ghost kitchen that is untouched. In case one kitchen goes down, it can be up in two hours. Mm-hmm. And it was used once last week, not because the kitchen goes down, but a truck driver took 300 meals to the wrong place. And we had to like allocate 300 meals immediately within 15 minutes, which was really awesome. Can you just talk about the importance of nutritious food? I think people maybe forget about this, that the amount of hours these healthcare workers are doing. Good, healthy, nutritious food is important to anyone, whether it's healthcare workers or, or the poor. The question I think that I would like to ask is accessibility to nutritious, healthy food. 
right? Mm-hmm. So doctors, to be honest with you, whether it's a COVID virus or not, are eating well. They're getting paid okay. And after like the whole trend started, 11 Madison Park and every three Michelin star restaurant was sending them food. The question was, is that who's feeding Pakistani communities in Jackson Heights who are undocumented, cannot go to the hospital in Corona because there's not enough machines and they have lost loved ones to it. Tell you a story. We have been feeding the family of a woman named Consencia. Consencia made headlines to the American military base of visiting her son by ICE, and she was up for deportation. So the legal organization that took her to court and make the road, in particular her, law, her lawyer, Gabriela, is a close friend. And she said the woman died. She was very depressed with cancer. She left behind her four children. We started feeding the families. All of a sudden... We're getting so many calls from people who either lost their jobs or are infected. They're too embarrassed to go stand on a bread line at Wall Street or Kitchen or anywhere else. So I'm sending out almost around 200 to 300 meals in a very streamlined taxi service to drop off food to people who are ashamed to come out and give food. And it can, get even, it can grow even more now with people losing their jobs. So the nutritious access here is not about the fact that you're getting healthy ingredients. The problem here is that like how much, how can people pay for food? And then we have to look at the food supply chain from beginning to end. You don't get your avocado for $1 at Whole Foods because you're paying American standard labor, right? To the workers. No, you're getting- You don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't get an avocado for a dollar at Whole Foods. <laughs> Just doesn't happen. It's $2.99. <laughs> you're getting legal exploitation of Americans yeah. over American uh, and Mexican farmer workers through NAFTA. I mean, mm-hmm. people have to understand this kind of thing. People are like, oh, halal meat is okay. I mean, I, I hate to say this during Ramadan. Please, Israel, don't kill me. But halal meat is awful. Like, it's really awful. And there's a behavior behind it. Not mm-hmm. because of the halal way it's killed, but because in the United States, there are only two producers of chicken, like mass supply, like the Tyson or Purdue. Yeah. There's not enough restaurants that supply high-end chickens in the Muslim community. So they get the lower grade chicken, which is the one that's infected with steroid. Unless they go to like a small butcher shop and they actually butcher their own chickens organic style, which is like in Queens and there are places, but on the large scale of things, that's not the case. So that's why you're getting a dollar nine cents a pound chicken. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. And like, so we now have to go. Which is con- uh, con- contributing to the underlying health issues of these communities. Precisely. And precisely, making them precisely. probably more susceptible to the virus. Uh, more the heart disease, not just the virus, to any, anything, uh, to yeah. any virus, to anything. Yeah. So it's important to talk about that. And of course, there are the sub-layers of that, food deserts, uh, the fact that kids on 86th Street have better access to food because their school zone pay more taxes versus 97th Street in, the, in, in Harlem where they're getting like chopped cheese sandwiches, which is literally a sandwich made famous by Anthony Bourdain, but it's a shitty ground beef like uh, cheese sandwich on a roll, almost like a Philly cheesesteak, invented by a Yemeni deli actually on 110th Street. They did a documentary on the sandwich. But point here is, is that accessibility to food is important. And not necessarily just in the United States, but all over the world. In Palestine, I don't talk about hummus for the sake of like who has the right to make hummus. I don't give two shits if Israelis make better hummus, right? But what matters to me is who has water access, right? Because we get water once a week in my village. The settlement gets seven days of water. So when they say, oh, we took a land that was barren and desert and turned it into greenery, I'm like, yeah, you did that by reallocating water for people who couldn't drink and then completely forgot about those people, right? So that's the, that's the most important part. I think it's a, it's a good point. I mentioned to you before we started this, uh, as a quote I was thinking about when we were preparing for this from Ernest Hemingway's uh, Sovereign Man, 
which uh, I think to quote it is, how, how do you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually, then suddenly. And a term that's often used by people when they reference that is everything happens slowly, then all at once. I think what we're seeing at the moment is suddenly, this moment of suddenly, both in terms of the injustices that people are experiencing, the consequences of bad food production, uh, in social inequities, political inequities, and also the mental health impact of that. So maybe this is a good point that we could you could both reflect on your perspectives on the mental health issues that we're, our people are experiencing right now, both in the hospitals and in the communities. You know, absolutely. I, this is what I keep discussing with people is that this virus is an equal opportunity attacker and it exposed capitalism for exactly for what it is. Everything that Bernie Sanders was talking about in the past three weeks actually came to light. Access to healthcare, access to mental healthcare, access to food, access to security, asking to job on access to rent stability, asking to, you know, all these things that we just don't have in a country. Like if you go to the supermarkets right now, the supermarkets at one, like in certain areas look like, the supermarkets of the Soviet Union after the fall in 1991. It's like embarrassing, right, mm. for a first world country. It's embarrassing that a first world country does not have enough uh, respirators for like uh, testing and that like New Zealand does better than us. You know what I mean? Like that's, it's, a, it's an issue, right? So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that this virus brought the sudden effect or the sudden mm. death of all these uh, ideas that were happening before. But unfortunately, will we rebuild? I mean, I don't know institutionalized university of Chicago style capitalism is very much embedded in uh, our grain and our DNA at this point in this nation. We're the only nation where labor unions vote Republican. So, I mean, like, I don't know where we, we can stand on this. Right. And mm-hmm. the idea that the entrepreneur, I mean, is, uh, is romanticized, right. But uh, not just in terms of being an entrepreneur is that the idea of the robber baron is uh, romanticized. And those the robber batteries are like the Bezos and, and all these folks, right? Where billions of dollars are okay while Amazon workers are getting infected and don't get anything. So that's sad. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. But I just want Isra to maybe just comment on what you're witnessing and what you're experiencing and your perspective, given the work you do with the Asian communities. Sure. So, you know, in terms of mental health, mental health is always something that is prioritize below physical health and below other social determinants of health, such as housing and jobs and uh, food security and all of those things. But what's interesting is when when this like collective trauma happens, and even though you are not, you might be experiencing job insecurity, you might be experiencing food insecurity, where regularly you have the habit, especially in communities of color, to not focus on mental health because this collective trauma is so large, even people who don't want to think about it, even people who are not accustomed to talking about mental health are experiencing the effects of it. And it's getting hard to ignore. So, you know, you like we are definitely seeing a rise in people asking for support and help, you know? So New York state has, they have like a 24 hour crisis hotline right now. um, And it's being manned by volunteers who have a mental health background. And so there's a rise in, in those calls from all communities. It's kind of like equalized the need to ask for help. And right now you are not hearing, like you're not kind of hearing as much 
stigma around asking for help right now. And now whether this stays beyond is different because I am hearing a lot of people saying that, okay, this is happening right now. So I need help right now to manage my anxiety about getting the illness, right? The fear is something that is so concrete that people are comfortable in saying, hey, I worry about this. I have anxiety Mm -hmm. about this. I can't sleep, right? And so it's not this like nebulous like this nebulous, almost like invisible fear. This is something that's so concrete that I am seeing people openly talking about it in my own communities, like in South Asian communities. I am hearing people who are from a different generation, like an older generation, who are openly talking about their struggles right now, which is a refreshing change from before where there was a lot of denial. But I will say, I I think as far as health workers are concerned, I'm seeing two big trends. One are folks who are completely debilitated by their anxieties, where they've had to take time off work. And, you know, that's the response that they're having. But a lot of them are also just kind of like on like autopilot. So my sister is a dentist, um, and she, but she works out of a hospital in Brooklyn. And, you know, so there's just this like stoic, like we just got to move ahead for like one step in front of the other. And so they're not taking time to process because if they did, the enormity of the situation would be too too much. So th- we might start to witness some form of PTSD effect coming out of this. Absolutely. I think there's going to be a huge spike, especially for the healthcare workers who are in COVID units because they're having to see really like wartime situations, right? Like shortages of respirators, like having to make difficult decisions and like just the enormity of having people die alone. I think that's something that's impacting people's emotional space a lot because if you do unfortunately pass away from COVID, you die alone. There's nobody with you. And that has like a huge emotional impact on the people who are helping So there's definitely going to be a spike in PTSD-like symptoms. And we're seeing some trends already, but, you know, as long as you're in there, you know, just to kind of, it's almost like being a foot soldier, right? You can't stop to think about what's going on. You just have to forge ahead. Uh, So there will be a huge decompression. And even for like non-healthcare workers, there's going to be a huge decompression after, which is why the remote mental health sector is gearing up. I mean, I get alerts every single day for new job postings for telecounselors and telepsychiatrists. And so like the big companies are really, really gearing up to face this. A couple of things. We interviewed uh, Dr. Courtney Renicky, one of our previous guests, uh, last Sunday, I think it was. And she talked about resilience. And she said it's interesting that if you look at how people are dealing and coping with this anxiety and the stress of it, if you've been brought up in environments and you've been conditioned to difficulty and challenges, you're more likely to just be able to deal with it and confront it. So it's, I'd like your perspective on communities that might be, and particularly you, Nasser, that have grown up in a, in a place like Palestine, where, or whether it's a war zone or people that have been living in food insecure areas, this isn't anything new. So are they better equipped mentally to deal with it? regardless of how hard it is right now. I'd like your perspective on that. And I'd also like to ask you about, because we've had conversations in the past around the taboos that exist within uh, Muslim communities. And I'd like to get your uh, insights into, is there a variance between Shia communities and Sunni communities, depending on the geographical regions people come from, how that taboo varies? I mean, I I hate to say this, uh, 
I don't say this to my like non-Muslim friends, but although I grew up in a Sunni house, I'm an atheist, but although I grew up in a Sunni household, mm-hmm. I do think the Shia are more enlightened. Just, 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 just my opinion. <laughs> I think they're just in general, they're more creative. They're on, like they have, they have their stuff here. Are we better equipped mentally to ac- accept these kind of things? I would say to a certain degree, yes, but there is also a higher level of endurance, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we don't have also a higher level of PTSD, depression, uh, self-doubt. Uh, being broken. One of the things that Israeli occupation succeeded for 70 years to do is to break the Palestinian ego, right? Uh, not necessarily ego, like in terms of like being proud and whatever, but like in the sense of like what we think about ourselves, right? So I grew up in an environment where I think I'm beneath everyone. I think I'm under everyone. I think that the world is better than me, right? We're considered persona non grata in different places, racist terms that are used against you, right? So in Jordan, for example, back in the day, and even till now, they would call Palestinians Belgians. Mm. And the reason the reason they would call them Belgians is that during the Civil War, Palestinians were given boots from the Belgian army, and they would say made in Belgium. So they were like, oh, those are like the Belgian key. It's a derogatory term at this point, right? Mm. In Lebanon, Palestinians are not allowed to work 70 occupations, cannot own property, cannot inherit property cannot go to court and they cannot uh, go enter civil services like uh, hospitals and schools, but they must abide by public law. So for example, there's this exam called the brevet, which is administrated in French and English. It's like your high school graduation or entry to high school examination. Palestinian schools or UN schools in the Palestinian camps don't have the budget to hire uh, French and English teachers, so the kids end up failing. There's a higher level of illiteracy. And that higher level of illiteracy and it, miseducation and misinformation leads to society problems. Why is that? Especially if they're girls, which is security. So if war gets out, then they have a dick and then they end up in poverty. It's down system, but it's like a top-down approach and how it really all begins access to resources and then and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to a point where it becomes a thing that's going to go ask for mental health yes i have vitiligo i'm bipolar i struggle with suicide and i did not get mental health care till i was 30 wow right when my skin started changing color when i was 12 out of depression people thought it was leprosy so nobody would touch me so you're in a village Everybody thinks you have leprosy, which is not leprosy. And to come four years later, and they'd be like, oh, you have vitiligo. That comes from manic depression, right? Okay, you're depressed. Now I understand a little bit. Then you go to the States for college, and then you end up as an immigrant in the Bronx, which would happen to me. And then you realize that poverty unites us all, and you get more depressed because like, society just tells you you can't make it, you can't eat, you can't live. So what do they have access to? Whether in the Bronx or Gaza, it's the same situation. Huh. Yeah, it does bring into sharp relief the uh, the American dream and the concept of uh, a land of opportunity, where clearly people are coming to realization this is not. No, this is no. not the land of opportunity. This is the land of, I would say, access. Mm-hmm. If you have access to go to Columbia University and have your parents pay your bills, and you can get your first put at the door at a big corporation, and then you can end up building your career, you can make something of yourself. Right, but if you're gonna end up on 149th Street and Soundview Avenue, right, where you're probably gonna get shot by the age of 16, or if you're in Gaza under siege with no opportunity to work, no opportunity to live, and the only way that you can find your way into some sort of livelihood is through Hamas, and where are you gonna end up? 
you know? And that happens across the board. It happens with Latinos too. Like, people just are not born to become drug cartel members. It's poverty that drives you there. So in these communities, Isra, are you seeing that, I mean, this taboo? I'm just wondering if, given what Nasser was saying there about these communities in New York City, if the taboo that exists within these communities around mental health, if it is, uh, if it's beginning to become acknowledged in under the circumstances of this crisis, or is it still being very much kept at a level of taboo? And if it is, how are we going to be able to deal with it? Because presumably, if it is just ignored, it's only going to fuel the anger and all the emotions that Nasser was expressing on this for kids on the streets as they grow up. Yeah. So the question is like a complicated one because it, there are so many like segments of the population, even when we talk about these communities of uh, like minority communities. So to answer your original question about the difference between Muslim Sunni and Muslim Shia communities, I personally don't know enough about either of those communities uh, from a mental health perspective to speak to that. But I will say that the shift right now in response to this is more present focused impact on mental health. So usually in in minority communities or uh, immigrant communities, sometimes like the mother language doesn't have the language to describe mental health or mental illness. And so you see there's a lot of conversation around the symptoms of the illness itself. So people are more comfortable in talking about the symptoms of experiencing something as opposed to saying, I have anxiety, right? So like I'm from Pakistan and Urdu is the language we speak there. uh, And colloquially, there is no term for anxiety. Like it just doesn't exist. So if if people my age want to talk about it, they say it in English, Right. So there's a there's a medical term that you kind of read in textbooks, but like how many people talk about things like that, right? So there is this and that kind of reflects the collective consciousness of, of a culture. And I'm obviously not I'm not here to like talk poorly about the culture, but that's just a gap that we have. And you know, uh contemporary younger people are like moving to fill it. So I know that just in my own community here, I do see that people in my age group, a little younger, a little older, are now more comfortable in talking about it, even in response to this crisis. My mom is like in her early 60s, you know, she is um, twice, like two partitions, lived through two partitions, was once a refugee for a short period of time in the 70s, like, you know, really worked hard to get out of that situation. So that kind of person is very stoic, and from our culture, they don't talk about feelings. You keep everything closed and you move ahead. But she, for the first time three weeks ago, asked me if I was having anxiety. Like she hmm. used that word and she used it for my sister because she's uh, obviously going to work right now. And so you're seeing these small shifts, but it's still very like present focus. It's, it's about here. And I wouldn't say that it's largely widespread. I would mm-hmm. say that the conversations around stigma and taboo are still more around the symptoms of the experience and less about um, the actual clinical terms. You know, very progressive religious organizations like the NYU IC mm-hmm. Center, they have like weekly programming uh, that is open to all ages. And every week they have something on mental health. Mm-hmm. Which is like amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. There's meditation, there's journaling, there's how to manage anxiety. That's they brilliant. Yeah, they bring in Muslim counselors and, and therapists. 
So that's good, you know, because a very large audience is seeing it. But, you know, unfortunately, through segments of the population, you know, the folks who are perhaps not as well off or not as educated, I wouldn't say that this will change anything because they're in survival mode right now, right? Like they don't have the luxury to take a step back and say, hey, let me think about how I'm feeling when they're worried about food and housing and and money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Naz, we interviewed a chef in the city, an Australian chef in the city called uh, Robert Marchetti, who moved here from Australia about 18 months ago to open up a place in Soho called Grand Tivoli. And yeah, it's cl- it's I, know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and we were talking about the, I mean, the, the legacy of the celebrity chefs and the, the shouting, the screaming, the abuse that happens in kitchens. I would have expect that today the the this military-style exercise that's going on, it must be a very different environment in the kitchens that you're working in at the moment to deliver this relief effort to people at the front line. Or are yes you, and, or yes, yes and no. But, yes and no. Do you still have to manage the stress of being able to keep up the numbers you're keeping up? Okay, so I think there is... Is there a lot of abuse that happens in kitchens? Absolutely. Is there a lot of breaking down of egos and personalities in kitchens? Yes. Are you humbled? That's a proper way of probably saying that you're just put down to the floor, yeah. stepped on and just told to shut the fuck up. Yeah, that happens all the time. Is it a difficult place for women? Yes. Is it a difficult place for women who are queer? Absolutely. Like, it's an awful environment. It got better, but in general, it's not the case. However, like in our kitchens, I think it's probably underst- it's very understood in all kitchens that you- even if you're beat down to the core by your superior chef or managing chef or whatever, afterwards you usually go out and have a good time and have a beer. But that mm-hmm. does not include men and women, right? Mm-hmm. It's mostly like a men bonding thing, which is also a problem within uh, kitchens itself. That's why like women-led kitchens tend to be better, more inclusive, better access to services and things like that where men let kitchens is a problem. So I'll give you an example. Chef Ryan Graham. Chef Ryan Graham is a mentor of mine, a brother of mine. The guy right now, before I just got on the phone with you, was out in the woods, like, forging ramps, right? Because he wants to make hummus with ramps for disaster relief effort. He's hunting them. Like, what kind of a renaissance man is that? <laughs> but, when he, but when he loses it in the kitchen, it's a scary sight. He lost it on me last Thursday because Al Jazeera was in the house filming. And it got so loud, so bad, so confrontational, right? Because he was already under a lot of stress pushing out all these thousands of plates Mm -hmm. that people came out and thought like, he's going to stab me in the neck. And like, (laughs) you know, like, and we had to like, here's how you do it. Like back when I was younger, like you would shout back, you would fight back and all, some people would throw down in the middle of the thing, right? But as you get older, you know, like this is just happening now. 10 minutes later, we'll be okay, right? Mm -hmm. Just eat it and ignore, right? Eat it and ignore. But yeah, I mean, I went through my, you know, share of that abusive, one of the most abusive, toxic, mentally health places I worked in was Dallas Barbecue. I have no problem shouting them out. They're a piece of shit place. And (laughs) these guys, all right, can you get sued for this or no? No. Okay, good. (laughs) Right. No, I mean, I'm for you. I mean, I don't care. No. (laughs) Yeah, man, these guys are like, they, they, completely not only integrated like uh, oppression and like uh, or sort of like uh, you know this oppressive kitchen environment they also integrated racism right so they would only hire bengali packers they would only hire mexican cooks and they will only hire 
black waiters and Latino busboys, right? So everybody became a clique. It came, became like that show Oz on prison, right? And the way that people talk to each other, the way that they use racism and derogatory forms is insane. It became like, like racism is such a, a high impact in that place. Even from people against their own people, it becomes a problem. And then it destroys you mentally. So when you exit and leave work, you're going down so beat that you don't think you can do better in life. That's why a lot of waiters there stay 20, 30 years and they don't move. It's crazy. I mean, if we, we know we're going to come out of this, this lockdown situation and that we'll, you know, however flat that curve gets in the, in the respite that we have during summer. Looking forward, what do you see as the, the longer term prospect for your industry, Naz? And also, how do you think that the mental health, the positives that will come out of this, maybe in, or you mentioned, uh, Isra, about organizations taking mental health more seriously. I'm looking for a little bit of maybe optimism, but if you think there's going to be, uh, if you want to paint a more dystopian or negative picture, please, you know, be open and honest as to what you think we have coming up. You want to go first, Isra? Yeah, sure. So in my perspective and the trends that I'm seeing, I am hopeful that the mental health industry will change a little. We're already seeing, and again, it comes out of this like adversity. And once something is out there, it's very hard to claw back, right? So inter, like within state borders, you're starting to see them lax the regulations. So a therapist in New Jersey can provide services to somebody in Manhattan right now. You know, we are working to provide services across state lines. And so that will be a great way to improve access all over the country, right? So I think once it's out there, it's hard to really claw back definitively from the consciousness of people once they've benefited from it. So I do think that some of the changes that have happened are going to, if not change the status quo immediately, but like start pushing towards that in a more constructive way. So like loosened regulations across state lines is going to, is something that's happening and I hope that we can continue that, you know, loosened regulations around telehealth and accessing therapy remotely. There was a lot of red tape Mm. around that, like where the therapist should be and where the person can be and all that stuff. Again, that's limiting people from getting services. So now they've started changing that. Employers are now very, very interested in the mental health of their workers because people again, in certain industries are working from home now and their mental health is deteriorating and they're getting a lot of absenteeism or presenteeism. People are like dropping off from the workforce. So employers are reaching out and needing and and wanting to make their EAPs or their employment assistance program or their mental health benefits more robust. And I've also seen a small change in insurance companies. So the American healthcare system is obviously a beast of its own. But insurance companies are now paying a little more attention to mental health and needing to integrate it into their like offerings. But what happens with that? I don't know. Because insurance companies are, you know, they're tricky to navigate, but they are now paying attention to it. So you're seeing this like shift in understanding that mental health is just as important as physical health. So I am hoping that that's something that is a lasting legacy out of this. And then on the consumer side, again, like I said, there are people who are becoming more aware. They're, they're becoming a little more comfortable in asking for help. And now whether this changes the entire population is yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. 
but there is a sharp increase in mental health literacy right now. People are curious about what's going on with them and seeking information through Google, through, you know, all of these services. So, Yeah, it's fascinating. We have, um, and what I do outside the podcast, we've got a a web design business and we've got three psychotherapy clients (laughs) and all of them have asked us to build pages for them on mental health resources. And and I think it is, it's the most wonderful, uh, around coronavirus, obviously, and it's the most wonderful thing to witness the amount of literature and content that is out there at the moment that's educating people around mental wellness and mental health and the actions they need to take and destigmatizing this. I did a I did a panel last May around mental uh, turning mental illness and focusing on mental wellness and around the stigma and it's amazing almost a year on what this the impact that this virus is ha- is having on that. So I think I, I'm very pos- optimistic about the societal impact, albeit there will maybe be more anxiety coming out of this, but I think we'll be better prepared as a society. So Naz, what about your perspective from inside the, your industry? Well, I mean, like I mentioned, uh, I'm heavily plugged into this industry, not just in the States, but like globally. I'm part of uh, Social Gastro Motiva, which brings all the best chefs in the world uh, in one place. I also do gastro diplomacy missions with the State Department and work with data firms and like Stanford University on the future of food and things like that. So the way that we're looking at it right now is that we truly believe that up to 75% of restaurants are not going to make it in the next six months. Immediate impact is around 30 to 40% of people that are going to shut down. I have to say that outside of the fact that I'm going to lose some of my you know, best places to go eat, I'm not necessarily that mad or upset about the fact that restaurant industry are losing uh, their footing. The restaurant industry was toxic. It exploited people of color. It exploited undocumented workers. It exploited women. And I hope that when it rebuilds, and it will rebuild, just like the financial crisis, just like anything else, it will be built. It will take some time. It will be painful. But I hope it doesn't come back to where it was, where you'll walk into Elili or you'll walk into 11 Madison Park or you'll walk into Nomad and you're only going to see Anglo-Saxon beautiful women on the floor and everybody that's black and Latino and brown is in the back of the kitchen, right? People of color cannot promote be promoted. Things that are obscenely disgusting and racist. So, you know, I'm not really that sad about the industry going away. Like, yeah, it sucks. A lot of waiters are now out of work. Look, I get it. I was out of work and I was homeless. Like, it's not that I don't see those things and didn't experience them. But I think uh, also like this restaurant industry, for anybody that's listening that's in the service industry, it's toxic and it kills you, right? Mm -hmm. So you were a waiter for a long, long time, but I'm pretty sure it was a side job until you decided that, you know, this is your career now because any other project or acting thing or singing thing didn't work out. So maybe like, what happens when you get 50? right? When you become 50 years old and your knees can't carry you anymore. So maybe this is a good shift for everybody to exit the industry into something that actually can give them security. There's no security in waiting tables. There's no security in like cooking and dunking fries. I mean, I got really lucky to, you know, be recognized, you know, around the globe where the best chefs and, you know, TV show coming up or whatever. We're like, these things, you know, like don't happen to anyone. Like my mentor worked harder for me than 20 years and, you know, he didn't get this kind of access. That's why he keeps calling me Rachel Ray which is like a fake TV show. But, you know, the truth is, is that like, it's luck. It's really luck. And we have to recognize your, 
blessings and try to you know give you know move it forward you know nobody's that special even these best chefs Gordon everybody nobody's that special so a couple of things and solutions are how people can help you uh, you've got a GoFundMe page we'll put a link to that in the show notes are there any other uh, things you want to make people aware of where they can help if they want to volunteer, if they want, if they, some people might want to come and volunteer that didn't, weren't aware of it. Absolutely. If they want to come volunteer in packaging only, then they're more than welcome to, or they want to deliver food, they're more than welcome to. The reason that we do that is that everybody in the kitchen has to be vetted with a DOH license and has to have experience and have to get tested every morning. So there absolutely will be no way that anybody can volunteer in the kitchen. But packaging, delivery, we're more than happy, logistics, PR, Call World Central Kitchen and tell them that we're amazing. You know, that's something that we would love to have so we can increase output. And uh, I hope that we get through this. But I also hope that by the end of all of this, in New York City as an entity, as a city, as a people, will eat migrant food. And that makes me proud. I want to showcase Jackson Heights. I want to showcase Patterson, New Jersey, Bay Ridge. And America, how I see it, at least through the eyes of everyone, including yourself, you know, who also immigrated here, tried to make a better life. And Isra, what uh, resources would you point people to if they need help? Sure. I think in terms of mental health, I would recommend the CDC. Absolutely. They have a whole section. Uh, NYC Well has a lot of resources right now. Uh, They have a crisis hotline. If you are experiencing any kind of uh, intimate partner violence or domestic violence, they have hotlines and resources over there. If you're looking for general wellness reading, you can find me on the internet at isranasser.com. I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Or you can find me on Instagram, well.guide. I put up a lot of content that you can just kind of integrate into your daily practice to help manage how you're feeling right now. Yeah. And that's where I I sat on one of those things. They were amazing. (laughs) Thank you. And that's where would people find you on Instagram? So now we have a PR company. I have an assistant. So I'm not allowed to give out my personal, but if you uh, want to follow it, it's at NasJab83. <laughs> before that, you have to follow at the Migrant Kitchen uh, on Instagram. We also have at the Migrant Kitchen NYC on Facebook. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay. And you mentioned, uh, like you dropped in there a little thing about a TV show. Are you a budding Anthony Bourdain? Uh, I can't get into the details, but this was supposed to be 2021, officially mm-hmm. signed with a large streaming provider, but it will be now for 2022. But I will definitely send out the trailer in the next three months. Great. Look forward to that. Yeah, thank you. Well, listen, I really thank you for your time. It's been really uh, brilliant. Thank you and for having us. It means a lot that you're showcasing you know, our culture and our people because yeah. uh, we don't have that kind of platform. So thank you. Well, I'll definitely be connecting you with a few people outside of this as well that I know. Well, and in fact, um, one of our guests, uh, upcoming guests is our client, Tara Andrami. She's an Iranian a psychologist here in the city, uh, has her practice. And I know that she'll probably want to connect with you and have a chat. So Yeah, I would love that. Thanks so much, Mark. This was, cool. this was a really good conversation. Great. Well, thank you very much. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Speak soon. Stay okay. safe, stay healthy. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, guys. Bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.